You're listening to the Between You and Me podcast, brought to you by JesusWire.com, with your host, Jessica Morris. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Between You and Me. My name is Jess. And this is the podcast where we talk to musicians about faith and the things that hurt and heal and change us. I'm really excited about this episode because it's all Australian, mainly because we are speaking to an Aussie musician called Andrew Kitchen, who has been part of the music industry in Australia for, I would say, about 20 years now. He knows it inside out. And the weird thing about Australia is that we don't really have a Christian music industry. We have some artists who are Christians, some who used to play on the festival circuit when we used to have Christian music festivals, but they sort of go hand in hand. So when it comes to Andrew, he was part of a really big band called Antiskeptic. Is there any more like naughties named than that? I don't know. But in any case, Antiskeptic were legendary back when I was a teenager. They opened for some of the biggest bands in the business, Switchfoot, Dashboard Confessional, you name it, they've probably done it. And they did it as an independent startup band. They started gigging in a regional town called Bendigo, literally going to schools because apparently you used to be able to do that. And they made it big. It's not easy in the Aussie music industry, especially if you're a Christian artist. Andrew has a really unique view on music and the music industry because he writes music not through a lens of faith, but with the purpose of writing good music. His faith naturally is part of that, but he actually talks about and rapping what it means to be a Christian in the music industry. It's really interesting stuff. I have so much respect for Andrew. We had never really spoken before this. We'd seen each other at a few festivals and events and stuff, uh, but we have some mutual friends and people speak so highly of this guy. He is so accomplished at what he does. He's really solid and he's a really foundational guy in the music industry in Melbourne uh, and for Christians in so many churches around here. So I can't wait for you to hear this. In between our conversation, you will hear snippets of old and skeptic tunes. They are well worth hanging in there for. If you love like Kiss Chasey or like sort of the punk pop emo sound of the noughties, you will love and a skeptic it's so much fun i also include a snippet of one of his new songs from his project ridley this is a great episode i enjoy this conversation so much there are some huge gems in here it's amazing enjoy Back when jeans were baggy and the gel in your hair was as shiny as your obnoxiously studded belt, Andrew Kitchen forged a path in the Australian music scene that proved punk pop wasn't just confined to North America. Forming the band Aspersia with his friend Sean Daly in 99, the Melbourne-based duo soon renamed their alt-punk outfit to TSP, or aptly the side project. And after treating an infected piercing, Kitchen came up with what could be the most quintessential punk band name ever, and a skeptic. Now, unlike the solo piercing trend of the time, the name and a skeptic stuck, and once joined by friend and drummer Nick Coppin, they began gigging, laying down their debut self-titled EP in the year 2000. Gaining a solid following in regional Australia, their music video for the single 60% Intentional was picked up by iconic music program Rage, and they soon made their mark on the tour circuit, playing at Christian music festivals like Black Stub and Forest Edge. Their 2001 EP, Change My Ways, followed, and their debut album, Memoirs of a Common Man, dropped in 2002. Their single, Call, was syndicated nationally on radio stations Triple J and Triple M. They also scored number 92 on Triple J's iconic Top 100 countdown for the same year, and soon were playing at festivals like Homebake, where they joined bands like Jet and the Goo Goo Dolls in the lineup. Antiskeptic's lineup changed with the release of album 2, named Aurora, but this didn't affect the building success of the homegrown talent. Singles like Nothing to Say played on Aussie TV and radio, and between 2003 and 2005, they found success with singles including Clear to Pass, Beautiful and White, and More Than Kind. A stint at the Renegade Festival, with bands like I Killed the Prom Queen, followed, and in 2005, they performed at the iconic Australian venue Rod Laver Arena for the Christian Youth event, Give a Life. A live recording of the performance was included with their seemingly final 2006 release, Monuments. 
performance on Roof Live and a national tour paved the way for their final performance at Christian Music Festival Easterfest, and it was here 11 years after first forming that Andrew Skept announced they were quitting. To say farewell to fans, they went on the Goodbye Goodnight tour, and after selling out Melbourne venue The Hi-Fi, they released a live recording and album to accompany the event. Deciding to reunite for a once-off show in 2011, the original trio played a gig at the Melbourne Art House, selling out in minutes. And after talks, two-thirds of the band decided to go back on the road, making way for some of the most successful performances of their career. Richard and Coppin were joined by Tavis Wardlaw of No Love for Lexi and Ryan McCleary of House vs Hurricane, and the reformed band re-established themselves as key on the club and festival circuit, playing East Effects, alongside P.O.D. and Mercy Me and opening for Body Jar. With the help of fans, they launched a possible campaign to record album three, titled Stare Down the Ocean. And a continued changing lineup and a national tour followed before the band stepped back from making music. However, they still supported iconic bands during tours of Australia, including MXPX and Switchwood at the 2015 gig at Russell Street, Melbourne. Continuing to work as a solo musician, mentor and producer, Andrew began the project Ridley in the years since Andersceptic went quiet, also playing with friends including Scott Darlow. Ridley's a double album, The Wind and the Way and the Silo Chorus, came out in 2016 and was also released in a double pack with Andersceptic's live CD DVD, Goodbye, Goodnight. And the latest news is that this week, Andersceptic announced they would be reforming for a one-off show opening for Amberlynn when they come to Melbourne this year. Proving that irrespective of age, time or notoriety, Andersceptic isn't dead. Andersceptic is well and alive. If its spirit lives on in Andrew Kitchen, it's not going anywhere soon, whether that is in the music of Ridley, in the realignment for a live show or in something we haven't even dreamed of yet. I spoke to Andrew from his hometown in Melbourne, Australia, about the rise of Andersceptic, what it means to be a Christian and a musician in Australia, and the struggles of success and touring. Meet one of the most iconic and well-known Christian musicians in Australia, friends. This is Andrew Kitchen. I want to sort of take it back to the very start and do a little bit of a rundown say for people who haven't heard of your music before or who maybe just want to reminisce. Can you tell me how your musical journey started and how that sort of went through to Andersceptic and now Ridley? Uh, sure. Gee, it, it probably went back to uh, watching Back to the Future one night and uh, Marty McFly tearing it up on guitar and uh, being totally blown away and thinking, yeah, yeah, this is what I've got to do with the remainder of my natural life. I've got to play guitar yes, and uh, I love that. and sing. So, I, yeah, I started playing guitar and... Um, uh, yeah, then I, look, I, I sort of, you know, did the old start off in a cover band and uh, that I formed with a couple of mates because we had none of our own songs. And then um, I started writing my own songs very, very early on. Um, and they, while, while they're not amazing compared to what I ended up writing more in more recent times, um, they weren't terrible. You know, I was like, I, I think I can actually have, a, I've got a brain for melody and, and for lyrics. Yeah, so I, I just started writing basically the music that I wanted to hear that I, I didn't feel kind of existed yet. I, I felt as though I had a few things to say about um, the intersection between uh, real life, real people and Christian faith. So yeah, I started writing and then I, I formed a band called Dispersia. Uh, the bass player of which ended up being Sean Daly, ended up being the, the bass player for Anaskeptic. So we stumbled across Nick and, um, yeah, we formed, we formed that band and had a good run for a, for a decade or so. Yeah, so when you say we had a good run, I was just doing my research online yeah. and I remember seeing you guys um, growing up in the church uh, instead of any youth group in the thousands. I remember coming across you and seeing an Skeptic sticker on my locker and, um, and like seeing you play at Youth Alive and I was looking at what you guys accomplished in your career and for an independent band it was ridiculous. Like you, you did over a thousand shows, you opened for so many people um, can you tell me how that progression sort of happened for you? Because one, your music has to be great for that to happen, and it was. But how did that sort of happen for you guys as independent artists? And you were quite young when you started, weren't you? Yeah, I was uh, early 20s. Um, I think Nick was maybe 18. 
Uh, so it's about a three-year spread between us. Um, so, yeah. But, um, yeah, I guess to answer your question, um, look, we always had a very sort of DIY sort of hands-on uh, ethos, uh, all very involved in the management and the, and the running of the band, um, which I think that um, when we ended up getting management and booking agents and all that, um, it kind of made us maybe easier to work with because we kind of knew the parameters under which we were working. It wasn't just like, you know, we had unrealistic expectations of our career. It's because we'd been managing for so long. Like we had, yeah, had a really kind of proactive um, attitude towards things. Like like at the start, we were really struggling to get any sort of, of the, the cool support slots at the big venues in the city. So we went, well, let's sort of do a real sort of regional Victoria push. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, we we actually started off heading to Bendigo and um, back in the day when you rang up a school and said, oh, hi, we're, we're a band and, and, and we want to come and play at your school for free during lunchtime, um, they'd be like, yeah, sure, yep, no worries. And um, yeah. these days you'd have to, you know, provide a, an, an affidavit, a scan of your passport, you'd have to be... <laughs> Yes. You'd be you'd be breath tested, drugs tested, working working with children's <laughs> yes. check. What's your public liability insurance policy number? Is every piece of your gear tagged and tested? Back in the day, it was just like you you prepared to bring all your own stuff and set up and play for our students. Oh, they'd love that. And so we ended up going to Bendigo and playing in schools for about three days. This is all off our own bat. And then we we hired out a local venue and played on the Friday night. We ended up getting about 300 kids coming along to the, the main gig that we kind of had been kind of advertising in the schools. And one kid came up to me at the end of the gig and said, oh, my name's James Bridger and um, I'm um, uh, my sister would, would love your music. Um, could I have a CD to give to her? And I was just like, well, oh, sure. It'd just be 10 bucks, mate. You know, like, Oh, sorry, I forgot to mention she works for Premier Booking Agency in Melbourne. Oh, and I went, oh, um, and I went, he could be just making this up. But it's unusual for a kid from regional Victoria to know of the name of a booking agency. You know what I mean? So I went, yeah, uh, sure. So I gave him a CD. And, um, and then Emma Bridger calls me about three or four days later. I'd love to see you play. And so I said, oh, we're playing at the um, the SB um, St Kilda front bar on Friday night. And so she came along um, and uh, she came up to us after the gig and she said, I'm Emma from Premier and that was awesome. And um, can we catch up this week? Yeah, we ended up catching up that week and Emma was our first booking agent and worked with us for a couple of years. And so this this big break that we got in some ways happened in a, a an all ages venue in Bendigo you know and so that is brilliant yeah so we, we just had this kind of DIY stuff at let's just go where the doors are opening not just sit here and whinge about how come we can't get a gig of the hi-fi bar how, how come we're not supporting unwritten law um so within a, a week or two Emma was calling me saying you know do you guys want to support Eskimo Joe do you want to support the living end do you want to support body jar do you want to you know and we were like uh yes to all of those oh my um, gosh yes. so it was just this kind of amazing kind of shift from always struggle street and um to to getting these great gigs and around about the same time um uh do you know the band rhubarb from from queensland they had a, a song called exerciser I don't, but I wish I did because it sounds like a great band. Yeah, and um, and so they sort of heard about us and um, they were kind of running their own record label and um, decided to actually fund us. So they, they supported us for our first album and, and the first couple of video clips. Yeah, so we ended up doing some shows with those guys and um, getting this CD out and sort of the, the, the ball was rolling. Uh, and that's kind of, um, the, yeah, the, the genesis of many things, uh, that kind of season. I know that we've only talked for a very short time and I, I, I think we have a few mutual friends, but my meeting you, my sort of, my assumption is that I don't think, you don't seem to get starstruck or anything like that or too blown away with celebrity stuff. Yeah. Was there a moment when you sort of thought yourself and as a band, we've sort of made it somewhat, like we've sort of carved our spot in the Australian music scene? Um, look, I think that what Anna Skeptic managed to do, which I don't know that I've yet seen another artist do is to bridge the divide between 
playing shows for faith-based organizations, uh, but also playing, um, you know, the, the, the dashboard confessional support, unwritten law, Mill and Colin, Jimmy Eat World, uh, $1 short, Body Jar, heaps of shows with Body Jar. So we, we kind of were in this weird space of going like, wow, we, we, we seem to be able to get away with playing Christian shows, but also um, uh, playing um, uh, like secular shows as well, yeah. if you know what I mean. So um, we, we were we were very fortunate in that space because we, we were actually to the point where some bands without any faith affiliation were saying, oh, man, we, we really need to get get at, um, start getting into these Christian, the Christian scene. How do we do that? And it's like, oh, you kind of got to live it out to kind of ride the wave. No, look, there, there wasn't any particular moment where I was like, oh, you know, we've, you know, the, 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 the platter of success has been laid out before us. But because um, I was always, always hungry for like the next song. I was very, very um, sort of song um, focused. Like, say, for example, like I remember when we were, we were in the mastering suite, mastering um, the, the second album, Aurora. And the last song, which is called uh, Breathe Into, um, I, I remember when that was being mastered and I was like, this is exactly how this song sounds in my head and better, you know. And, and to me, if anything, like that's making it where you can actually take the sound that's in your head and convert it into something that other people can listen to and they really love and enjoy and it becomes part of their life. And I remember being in Adelaide and a girl had those lyrics tattooed on her forearm and I was like, wow, that's obviously really struck a chord for her. So, um, so look, as far as, you know, like, oh, yes, we've made it, you know, like, nah, I, I don't think I ever thought that at all. It was just um, always a, um, you're, you know, you're only as good as your last record and a real hungry uh, hunger to write you know, great songs of, of meaning, but also musical, I don't know, really edifying musically that, that, that really challenged, like it, there, there was no passengers in the song. The melodies were good. The message was good. The backing music was good. And all those things were really important to me. And I was just lucky to come across like another couple of people that were the, the same, that were as, were as driven as me as far as their melodies and their songs and stuff. Um, back in the day and you guys were sort of starting out you sort of straddled this unseen line between secular and Christian mm. which um, could be an imaginary line may not be it's up for grabs depending on who you talk to yep. can you explore what that meant for you guys how did did you guys brand yourself as a Christian band or did people just know about your faith so naturally you were booked for Christian gigs as well as secular gigs for lack of a better term yeah well look I, I we did always kind of err on calling ourselves a christian band purely because um of people's preconceived ideas as to what that meant and what that meant for our skeptic um because they'd say oh so you only play in churches no we we play in pubs and clubs and and festivals and whatever else you know wherever is a good gig mm -hmm. going and um, oh, so you play Christian songs. Well, what makes a song a Christian song? You know, like, and we were like, uh, um, look, do all of the songs we write sort of come through um, the, the the lens of faith? No. Um, in fact, some of the songs are like I've got a song called "Road and Travel," which is about um, about World War Two and 
I've got a song called Four Seasons about the Vietnam War. Um, and, um, and so it, it's, it's like, I, I've got a song called Tear Simone about, about the collapse of the, 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 uh, the, the bridge over the, the Derwent River in Hobart. Uh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, is that a Christian song? Um, but to me, you know, are there elements of, of God's story in those songs? Yeah, there is. There's elements of redemption and of human courage and of beauty and brokenness. Um, which I think all sort of speak of, of the gospel, but whether directly or indirectly, you know. So, yeah, it was a title that we kind of erred away from. Um, and when I had the chance to explain that, you know, that was good when I didn't have a chance and people jumped down my throat and said, so you're denying Christ as the person that gave you the ability to write music and, uh, uh, well, just give us a sec <laughs> yeah. to, to explain why I don't necessarily brand ourselves as a Christian band. Um, I think that, I think, you know, those moments when you're growing up, for me, I remember hearing that, that Gary Ablett was, was a man of faith, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, he's a, he's, he's had his struggles throughout the years, but I remember when I heard that and I was a kid and I was just like, but he's so good at footy and he's a person of faith. That's unbelievable. And then there's actually scripture that says, um, Pursue the things that God has blessed you with and you will win favour in the eyes of man and in the eyes of God. So it's like we actually intentionally set out to be a good band that people wanted to listen to and wanted to go and see before it was any kind of uh, mission to to save the world by playing rock and roll. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it was just like if we have a platform and that platform is good, and we, we can stand up against, you know, the, all of the other bands out there and all of the other artists, then maybe in that space we might be able to do something constructive. And, I've, and there was plenty of opportunities throughout the years where that was the case. Yeah. You guys did a ton of, and forgive me for using the word secular, I feel like it's the only way to define it with like Christian yeah. festivals, but you guys did a lot of secular festivals and Christian music festivals um, over the years, yeah. which have sadly disintegrated in Australia now mostly. Um, yes. But can you tell me, was there a difference between your experiences at the secular festivals and Christian ones? Like was there, mm -hmm. was there a change in attitudes? Was anything surprising to you? Because I've heard stories, but I'm just, I'm curious about your experience. Look, I met a lot of really great people at, at these, you know, Vans Warped to a Falls Festival, uh, Homebake, um, and the others that we've played. But um, I guess there's alcohol on the rider. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's probably your biggest difference. Um, oh, look, there's there, in some ways there's, there's a lot of um, a lot of similarities. Like some of the best memories that I have from both Christian and, and secular festival work is um, is your times actually at the catering um, where you're just spending time talking with other musicians who are struggling with exactly the same things as you, like going, you know, like, you know, I've, I was, you know, I was the classic story of, of playing Rod Laver on Saturday night, being on Rage at 7 o'clock on a Saturday morning and then pushing trolleys around Kmart on a Monday morning um, and just trying to, to get my head around that and talk to other artists who I thought were massive that were guitar teaching and working retail and all of those things. So it was actually like an encouraging thing to, to kind of go, okay, well, look, even the guys from X band or the girls from X band are, are struggling with, you know, how long do I keep this up? Like, you know, when, when's the break going to come that, that kind of justifies all this ridiculous sacrifice and all of the family events that I've missed and the, the foregone um, income from actually getting a degree behind me and, and where, where's the, when's the payoff, you know, and um, I think, look, it just comes in dribs and drabs. I think that um, secular festivals are, are, Look, I, I had experiences with festivals that were really well run by Christians and really badly run by Christians and festivals that were really badly run by people in the secular environment and were run really well by the secular environment. So um, there's nothing that particularly 
um, identifies um, what you know the, the the ethos, the heartbeat behind a festival, whether it's Christian or secular. But I guess like when we played Black Stump, that was that always had a really good feel about it. Um, I, I miss that festival and the good fun that we had at that festival. Yeah. Does the response soldiers in line say hold? Press for them safe, they fall to the beaches go. So when you guys sort of um, finished up and a skeptic and you took a break for a while, was one of the reasons you did that for family and stuff like that? Or did you just sort of come to the natural sort of end of the band in that season? Yeah, I guess it was the just the more more the natural end of, of things. Like basically we, we'd actually written um, in 2008 or whenever we finished up uh, with, with Sean as the three-piece, the original three-piece. Uh, we'd actually written like most of, of, I'd say, yeah, probably three quarters of Stare Down the Ocean, the the album we ended up doing in 2011. And we had like a significant budget to work with that we'd saved over the last, you know, 18 months. I'm, I'm pretty good at the old sort of financial management of the band. And so we'd managed to scrape together quite a bit. And that was also the work of our our manager at the time, Anthony, who, um, who worked for us for, I don't know, four or five years. And we, we had good savings. It would have been enough to go across to the States for a month and record with a big name producer. And, um, and we were like, well, okay, do we, do we want to, you know, do we want to get on the treadmill again, which is, you know, pre-production, recording, Mm -hmm. touring, promoting interviews, flights do we want to start that again and um I was kind of like I was kind of 50 50 another band member was like oh, I'm pretty happy I'm pretty happy to call it quits there yeah. um and another band member was was actually kind of the same as me kind of going well I, I mean if you guys are in I, I don't know that we were all convinced that it would be a good thing for us as individuals to to go again but, you know, as, as time went by, I was like listening to the demos of these songs and just going, oh, it's a shame that these are never going to see the light of day. And then we, then we made the mistake of announcing a, um, a reunion show in 2011, which sold out. Of course it did, yes. Yeah, and, um, you know, six weeks out, it sold out and, um, and we played that and just had an absolute blast and then we, we got talking more and more and more about doing more things. Perhaps we just needed some time off because we hadn't really stopped. We hadn't hit pause on Anaskeptic for a long, long time. And you're always writing and you're always talking to each other about different gigs and different, you know, that you could play. And all. so probably one thing we didn't do well throughout the history of the band was um, locking a year into a, into sort of seasons, you know, when you'd go like, okay, well, we know that um, August, September, we're not doing anything Anaskeptic related at all or maybe just August, you know, and, and so you've got that space and time to sort of go off and do different things, but we just were always available to the band and maybe it took its toll over time and, you know, we just needed a, some time out yeah. to, for, the, for the longevity of the band as well. So when you guys decided to bring back Andoskeptic yep. for a few years, um, what was your biggest fear going into that? Did you have any fears about reforming as a band? Uh, no, not, not, not really fears. Like I was, I was more excited about the recorded material and, um, and putting out a new album. It was actually quite exciting doing the whole fan funding thing and just going, wow, there is a lot of love for this band still. Um, so that was pretty cool. If fears, if anything, was more around the touring and and unfortunately, it did end up happening where I got sick just before we we went on our sort of stare down the ocean tour, and you know, sick to the point where you're not you like really functioning well and you're not thinking clearly. And I lost my voice. I got laryngitis, and I was touring and trying, just trying to get through each gig, 
and I'd just collapse at the end of every gig and just feel dreadful, you know, and just oh, man. it was the worst. I, that that nearly broke us, just that that whole tour of just me being sick the whole time, and it just sucked. Um, there's some cool shows on that tour, uh, but maybe uh, in hindsight we realised that we, you know, we 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 asked for about six or seven thousand dollars to record the album because I was going to record it most of it myself. But we ended up getting closer to thirty thousand dollars from our fans. But um, it's like it's like they had enough money to throw at a band that they they loved and they'd love to hear more material from. But as far as getting out to a live gig, it was a lot harder. So the tour went well, while it went well, um, and you know on a, a cold Thursday night in Sydney, we got you know one hundred and twenty payers. I was kind of hoping that it would be like two fifty or something like that. But yeah. so we had. Um, you know, some, some struggles on that tour just with attendance. But I now find out that that's actually quite a good good number of people on a Thursday night in Sydney anyway. So, yeah, it was more about the live tour that, that I was like, gee, I hope that we can we can do this and I hope it, it goes well. You know, I hope it goes as well as this album is gone, you know, like because we've got this crazy amount of money and we're able to work with Forrester Savelle and do these cool video clips all, all through fan funding. Let's hope that the tour is as, as positive an experience as well. Can you tell me what happened between the gap, I suppose, of that album, which I know you you toured for a little bit and it was sort of still around because I remember seeing Switchfoot, um, I think it was at Russell yeah. Street a few years ago when you guys opened for it and that was the album that you were selling and promoting yeah, at the time. Yeah, that's right. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened between, I think, 2011 um, until the creation of Ridley for you? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and a skeptic, we, we did the Stare Down the Ocean record. We did a run of shows. Uh, and then we, we hooked up with, I can't even remember this, uh, it might have been Live Nation or something like that, that ended up giving us a bunch of support shows. So we ended up, in that season, we ended up playing with Everclear, um, Lifehouse, Switchfoot. I think there was another couple in there maybe, or maybe that was it. But um, yeah, we ended up getting some really cool shows, and which we really enjoyed. I've, I've been, then the drummer actually got an opportunity to work in um, the sunny coast, and he's always wanted to move up there. And so I was just like, dude, yeah. just go for it. Like, there's nothing massively like, dude, we're about to take off. You know, like we those days we felt like I felt it sort of come and gone. Do you know what I mean? Like we were like, look, yeah. we, we might get to play a show every now and then, which you can fly in for. Um, but, you know, I don't think we're looking, staring down the barrel of being on the road for months at a time. I had three kids by that stage. He had two. Um, so, yeah, th- those days were a bit different. But I thought, well, I'm going to get on with my own sort of musical ventures. Um, many years ago, I, I was in a, a, a like an acoustic band and I put out a, a solo record called The Master of Simple Things. Uh, and um, that was in like, gosh, 90 eight 99 maybe and there was so much promise with that band but very soon after that Anaskeptic just went gangbusters and so it was kind of like I I just felt like I was being torn in two different directions and just had to lay that acoustic project to, to, to rest I thought stuff it you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna pick this up again just in dribs and drabs and so I got I got offered a little support slot um, just to play acoustic. And I, t- I contacted the drummer of, of Ridley um, just totally tongue-in-cheek and said, dude, do you want to play an acoustic drums show? And he was just like, yeah. And I was like, are you serious? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, okay. Well, I better write some new new songs. And he's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then <laughs> And then he's ringing me going, hey, look, my brother-in-law plays bass. So he could play bass for us. And I was like, okay. So I, I re- asked the original keyboard player if he'd be wanting to want to play as well. And he was like, oh, mate, mate, I haven't touched keys for, it'll be, it'll be five years. And I went, all right, no worries. So I contacted a mate, Jared, who plays, he used to play in a band called Compliments of Gus and kind of bangs around yes. the trap. So Jared jumped on keys. And so it was actually just John Owen I, the drummer that played that one support show. And it was so much fun. And um, and I spoke to him and I said, look, mate, I'd love to do some more stuff. And he's like, man, I'd love to as well. Because um, Jono had been in a band called River Tribe and they they toured internationally and done heaps and heaps of stuff. But him, like me, 
you know, he's, he's back in Melbourne now, um, got a couple of kids and was just looking to do music where it fits around family. And then a mate of mine from Sydney, um, Rich Vassello, um, he, he rang me one day and he's like, is your church looking at doing a worship album anytime soon? I was like, no. Nah. And he goes, because my senior pastor has wants me to to fly in uh, and work on someone else's album just as a as like it was almost like a personal development thing. Um, and and I was like, wow, kind of a free producer for a week. And then I thought about it. And I was like, well, we could do a Ridley album, and I could finish off a few songs. We could brush up a few of the old ones and and just record them live at Jono's studio the drummer studio. And so we did that in the late months leading up to it, to it. I was emailing Richard all the time. Like I've got an idea for this song. I've got an idea for that song. And then I said, dude, I've got an idea that we actually record two albums. One's kind of like a worship record and the other one's just like this, a storyteller's record, but it's both under, under the name Ridley and we record it all live in a couple of days. And it's just like, okay, I'm only down for a couple of days uh, for a week though. And I was like, let's do it. And so that was the the genesis of of that 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 Ridley double album. Um, so I'm really proud of that record. There's some yeah really cool songs in there. So it was kind of like a healing experience as well, just to kind of finally get the album out that we probably were leading up to back in 1999 uh, after that initial record. Um, so yeah, there's been some cool experiences to play those songs around the traps, and um, I'm hoping to do some more stuff with Ridley. Yeah, I think the songs are really powerful and meaningful and very catchy and um i'd love to see see myself you know in 12 months time doing a couple of shows here and there good the sharpest mind but lost hunting the faintest light only you could see in your first love gone in a band now called Darlow with a guy by the name of Scott Darlow and he's got indigenous heritage. I think it was Boxing Day 2016, my phone rang and it was Scott and I'd, I'd spoken to him previously and I knew knew him and I'd met him three or four times throughout the years. Um, and he was a, a songwriter and he was just looking for a, um, a guitar player and and person to do backing vocals um and he talked about his band and all and his journey and his songs and what he wanted to do and what he wanted to, to achieve and he just sounded hungry and, and passionate and um like he'd learned a lot of lessons the hard way as i had uh mm-hmm. and the thought occurred to me you know that that a lot of people had um got behind my music over the years and maybe it was time for me to sort of jump on someone else's bandwagon uh, who was giving it a red hot go? I jumped in with um, with Scott's band and just played electric guitar and sang. We had a gig three days later, and uh, I'd learn all the songs. Thank goodness we had time for a, for about a half an hour band practice. Um, and um, yeah, so that was a couple of years ago now, and we've played. Yeah, we've played a lot of shows. Like this year, we did a, a run of festival shows called Under the Southern Stars, and we played with. Um, Hoodoo Gurus and Super Jesus and um, Eskimo Joe and uh, Getaway Plan and and all these other cool bands. So yeah, Scott's got a real heart for um, First Peoples of Australia. So we've played some Indigenous festivals as well, uh, and a few of the new songs are uh, about that theme as well. So yeah, that's been kind of the thing for a few years now, and something that I've quite enjoyed writing for. And it's it's mm-hmm. nice. I've got to be honest. It's nice being in a band where I don't have to do any accounting or people management or booking hotels or booking flights. I just rock up to the airport when I tell I'm get told to and write songs when I'm told to. And, and um, it's, it's a good feeling, but I'm sort of, yeah, sort of going above and beyond as, as, as far as I can with my studio and um, trying to help Scott out as, as much as I possibly can as others have done for me in the past. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's a probably a new album in the works in the next sort of six to eight months, I'd say. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I'm curious, 
what has your time in that band taught you about Australia's First Peoples and even how you communicate as a musician? Uh, well, I mean, Scott, just hanging around Scott and his, his wealth of knowledge and history is, is pretty amazing um, and the things that we learn. Um, look, I think that uh, th- there's obviously an incredible amount of, of tragedy and sadness around um, how we, Atlant- we as, as, um, as Westerners and, and boat people, however long ago or how recent, have uh, landed on these shores and how we treated those peoples but um it's even sort of raised my own awareness like you know when you when you hear about these things in in history and everything like that um in school uh, you always kind of think sort of northern territory and and you know maybe far west uh, northwestern um australia Mm -hmm. and stuff but then you know like i'm on a bike ride with my kids and i read that just near templestowe there was a tribe of indigenous peoples who the the us Westerners, we arrive, we met them, um, we fed the whole community damper that was poisoned and they all died. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And that was uh, about four Ks from my house and you realise this is a nationwide thing. So, yeah, Scott's been quite vocal in the, you know, when when Australia Day is celebrated and why and by whom and um, how it's remembered by our First Peoples. So, um, yeah, that's been an interesting thing to be um, sort of front row seats and and sort of hear that conversation unfold. But um, I met some Indigenous people last weekend at this festival we played up near the Murray in Barma in just in New South Wales. So it's just over the border, uh, yeah. just over the Murray. And um, it was the Kamaranja uh, 80th uh, anniversary. So, yeah, 80 years ago, um, a group of First Peoples who, who were part of the Stolen Generation walked off a mission to, um, in protest of how they were being treated and, and everything changed from that time. Wow. Uh, and it became actually a really positive place. So when, when I was up there and I was saying to Scott, I was walking around the mission and I said, would this place be fondly remembered or would this place be like it's almost like an Auschwitz-level kind of place where, you know, people come to mourn? And he goes, oh, no, after the walk-off, um, which was the protests, protest walk-off, the government just really turned that place into a really positive place. So a lot of Indigenous peoples were actually given jobs to to run the school and to teach um, the culture, but also to teach new like English. Um, mm-hmm. And so it actually became a really positive place. So while um, there's a lot of sadness um, in our history, um, even long ago, there was still some stories of reconciliation so that was that was good to know and good to hear. So what does it mean for you now to be a musician in Australia with a faith as opposed to when you started and a skeptic? Mm. Um I'm probably delving further into um what I was kind of doing in Anaskeptic uh which was songs through my faith but not like lyrically not at all blatant you know like about faith based matters it's just seeing the 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 as i said before the um beauty from tragedy you know um and that's that kind of that kind of storyteller vibe and i think that you know like jesus told stories all the time you know there was a his parables you know and um and I think story is a really good way. Um, it can be very challenging for songwriters to to get a clear message across without, you know, being yeah. boring lyrically, you know, and just, you know, just singing really, really bland lyrics. I, I think I'm kind of, I, I see my, nearly my responsibility now is, is to write, write music that is very relatable um, and tr- also trust that, you know, God's going to do what God's going to do through my music, whether I sing words that I found in the white pages or whether I, you know, delve into my own creativity. Like, I don't know, like my dad preaches a sermon and someone says to him afterwards, oh, you know, what you spoke about, you know, God's mercy just today was just what I needed to hear. And he's like, oh, that's fantastic. And he's looking back through his notes and he's going, I didn't speak about God's mercy. 
So God can use the lyrics that we write in a yeah. multitude of ways, I think. Um, and I also kind of see myself as, as uh, a little bit of a mentor as well for the younger musicians coming through um, and um, trying to get around some younger players and kind of be the person that yeah. I needed when I was younger. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I see my, my faith intersecting with music in this, this current age and stage. And I'm strolling through a garden, it's midday And I know her songs are life So close to death, I know it's pain So I pray for us if I Judy lies waiting now for days She feels alright, who can rest the time? Feel alright, have I told you? do at the end of all my interviews is just ask my guests a few quick questions that don't really seem to fit anywhere else um but they're more that if if a fan came across you and they wanted to ask you something randomly they'd probably ask you this type of stuff okay uh so can you tell me what your favorite and a skeptic song is and why yeah um probably a song called goodbye goodnight um which is off aurora uh it's a pretty straight up like rock song but um it speaks about my experience at school where I was like severely bullied. Um, and um, yeah, it's actually a, a thing that's, that has quite, has affected my life and has um, long-term sort of um, ramifications. Um, mm-hmm. So it's me dealing with how I was treated at school for standing up for what I believed in and, you know, staring down evil in, in a multitude of ways. Um, and something that I'm de- de- working through at the moment. But, yeah, that song was kind of um, the preemptor of, of me processing my schooling experience. And um, that's a great riff as well. I love it. So, <laughs> so wow. mu- musically edifying, melodically ed- edifying, a personal song to me and a good message. Wow. I love how music can sort of open that stuff up and really, like, prepare us for it. Yep. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, you whether it's on tour or any of like the support acts and gigs that you did, what's the funniest moment that you've had like on stage on tour? Oh, have you heard of a band called Seraphs Cole from Adelaide? I haven't. And right now I'm feeling like I don't know as much about Australian music as I should, but please go ahead. Oh, look, they were a, a pretty sort of flat out rock band punk rock band from uh, from Adelaide and um, had a great following and we ended up doing a run of shows with them, oh, quite a lot of shows with them around the place. And um, anyway, a couple of the members of Sarah's Cole, just as I'm playing, just jumped on stage and dacked me. <laughs> and, was oh my God. Yes. and so we, we waited for an opportune time and um, I got on stage and it's really weird when you say it now, but Sean, the dr- dr- the bass player, and I licked the ears of the drummer when he, <laughs> oh, when gosh, he just yes. wasn't expecting it, and he was just freaked out and just completely stuffed up his part. So, a bit of shenanigans that went on between and skeptic and Seraph Cole, but it was all very like you know we all um, loved each other, and it was it was good fun. There was nothing nothing like menace, not, nothing serious yeah. about it. It's good for me. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Um, and lastly, if you could go back in time um, and speak to yourself when you were a kid and you just sort of started picking up that you love music um, but didn't really know how you're going to go about that, what would you say to yourself? Um, what would I say to myself? Uh Get a law degree. <laughs> no, um, there's going to be uh, incredible times ahead. There are going to be testing times ahead, but it's all worth it in the end, perhaps. Yeah. And and I'd also probably say that that at forty one, um, you will own more Star Wars figures than at any other time in your life. And I think that that anything else would have fallen to the to the wayside, and I would have been thrilled. And- it's freezing, though, it's warm as I recall.
I hope you guys enjoyed learning all about the history of Antiseptic and Ridley. I particularly really loved hearing his thoughts about Australia's first peoples. One of the things I want to do with this podcast is talk to musicians who are members of Australia's first peoples. They are some brilliant musicians out there. Spirituality plays such a beautiful role uh, of their music and it sort of comes often hand in hand with their faith in God and it's just stunning i would love for you to hear that uh from the perspective of someone who has come from that background but in the meantime what andrew shared is really cool uh as fellow person who came on a boat as someone who came as a convict back in the day i really appreciate his thoughts on reconciliation and what he's actually learnt through his work there so it's really cool to hear that and really really cool and humbling to sort of know that so many Aussies are in a position of learning and accepting at the moment and seeing what uh, we can we can do and learn from our Aboriginal brothers and sisters. If you loved what you heard today, you can pick up all three of Andoskeptic's albums on iTunes. Just look up Andoskeptic. You will literally see a link in the episode bio below. It's so fun. <laughs> Seriously, I've been going back through Spotify listening to it and I sort of feel like a teenager again and it's just great. It's so good. You can also find Ridley on iTunes and you'll find Ridley Music on Facebook. Just R-I-D-L-E-Y-M-U-S-I-C. Now for all details on how to follow Andrew Kitchen online and stay up to date with all his music projects, you will find the links below. It's generally just andrew.r.kitchen and that will keep you informed about any new projects that are coming up. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode for joining with me in my fandom about Australian music. It's so nice to have another Aussie accent on the podcast. I mean, like, I love having different accents and different people from different places, but it's just like, yeah, this is home. This is good. It's really fun. So I hope you guys really enjoyed it. Now, if you haven't subscribed, please do. I say it every week, but if you like it, go for it. Subscribe, rate it if you feel so inclined and share it with your friends if it's a thing. That would be awesome. In the meantime, remember that you can connect with us at Between You Me Pod. That is on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And you can find us online at betweenyouandmepod.com. Next week is going to be brilliant. I know I always say it, but I just love this. I love what I do. I love that I get to share it with you. And I can't wait for it. So I will see you next week. For listening to the Between You and Me podcast. Stay connected by visiting www.betweenyouandmepod.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. For more Christian news, reviews, and interviews, get plugged in to JesusWire.com.